for this week. I'm Ashley Drew. Thanks again for listening. Merry Christmas. Happy holidays. See you next week. Welcome to Run, Walk, Crawl. Today we have a slightly different guest. It seems that every time I do a podcast, I'm just recording a uh, an ultra runner of some sort. But today we have a runner, uh, Nicole. Uh, I'll let her introduce herself. So, Nicole, could you please introduce yourself and tell the audience who you are? Sure, absolutely. So, my name is Nicole. Uh, I am definitely not any ultra, any version of anything runner. <laughs> uh, I am a runner of of sorts, um, and I'm also a, uh, a mum and uh, a career driven person, and and also someone who's battling uh, a stage four bowel cancer. So uh, I've got a couple of different hats that I'm wearing, um, but yeah, that's me. That's you. Well, that's definitely a few hats, that's for sure. So I didn't realise you were stage four. Yeah. Yeah, stage four. Stage four bowel cancer. So diagnosed in, where are we now? 2020. So diagnosed March 2017, stage four. Um, At the time, my little uh, baby man, my son, Joshua, was only eight months old. So, um, yeah, that's, that's where we caught it, was right at the end where... We'd already seen a spread to my liver and my lungs at that point. So um, when I was diagnosed almost three years ago now, I was told that the statistics said that I probably had about maybe 18 months to sort of two years, maybe three years if I was lucky left. So, yeah, sorry, that kicks off the podcast in a pretty low note, doesn't it? <laughs> well, <laughs> that was yes me. No, but you, you're obviously sticking it to them. Um, yes, exactly. That you yep. are still alive now. I'm still alive. And, yep. And, yeah, which is awesome, absolutely yes. awesome. Thank you. Um, and so has there been any regression in your disease through treatment or are you still sitting in stage four? Yeah, so look, technically I am sitting in stage four and by definition I guess you'll always kind of be sitting in stage four. I think, you know, stage four cancer land is a really complex place to be. Um, it's not something that I understood at all. We, you know, I don't have a family history of cancer at all. I'd never even, you know, come across cancer. I was extremely lucky. I hadn't had any family or loved ones or anyone with cancer. Um, but once you've got a spread of disease and it's gotten into your blood or it's gotten into your lymph nodes or however it's chosen to sort of work its way around your body, um, those microscopic cells are then there. Um, so it's always a sort of a, a hunt to see, you know, if you manage to trap it and get rid of it in one place, is it going to pop up somewhere else? And, and obviously stage four cancers are very different depending on, on the cancer too. And mine's very specific to me, my bowel cancer and also the DNA of that cancer. Um, but I mean, the, the short answer to your question is, is, uh, there has been a lot of response, um, to treatment in my disease. So I had a great response to chemotherapy. Um, I've done a lot of rounds of chemotherapy. Um, I'm, you know, I've, I've been in active treatment for three years now. So I've had a bowel resection, I've had a liver resection, and I've had five lung operations to cut the cancer out of my um, out of my lungs and then in between that lots of rounds of, of chemotherapy so it's a constant a battle uh, at the moment everything is pretty cl- clear ish I never say totally clear and I don't like using the word remission or anything like that it's just a very complex word to use in stage four land um, but yeah I'm very 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 lucky things are very positive for me at the moment 
Now, for the, for the listener, stage four means that um, the cancer has spread from the original spot. So stage yeah. zero in cancer, just so everyone knows, um, is a couple of abnormal cells that have been discovered. Then stage one is an actual cancer cell in a yeah. single location. Stage two is a bit of a mix-up. Stage three means it's it's spread somewhere else, but it's still relatively isolated. Then stage four yeah. means it's spread to pretty much everywhere, other depending on or, yeah. yeah, other organs is probably the best definition. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, well, you've had a lot more surgeries than I have. When they did the <laughs> resection of your bowel, how much did they yeah. take out? Twenty-five centimeters, I think. So yeah, yeah. there you go. Yeah. So they took a meter out of they took a meter out of me. Oh wow, that's um, a lot. Yeah, yeah. I guess we've got a lot of bowel to go around, though, don't we? (laughs) We do. That's just it. The human body has 6.7 metres of intestine, et cetera, because they took – I think they did, like, two or three resections in in my gut. But, um, yeah, they they went to town. But uh, still, 25 centimetres is a lot. Yeah. Um, How long did it take you to to recover from that surgery? Um, That surgery was my toughest one. That – um, it was a massive achievement to get to that surgery. I had that surgery being the liver and the bowel resection we did at the same time. So we did Ooh, that in, okay. yeah, yeah. And it was, you know, it, I was cut open from sort of, you know, um, my breastbone all the way down, straight down the front of my tummy, down to my sort of um, pelvic bone, you know, all the way through yeah, as, as far yeah. as we could cut, I guess. Um, so, yeah, that took me a long time to recover from. Um, I would say sort of six weeks before I was really kind of being able to get back into anything physical. Um, and yeah, but I guess with surgery, you know, it's, it, it's almost become like a, a sort of a standard part of my, uh, of my year and my calendar is to kind of think about surgeries and how I'm going to plan for them and how I'm going to prehab for surgery and how I'm going to rehab for surgery and, um, you know, which part of my body needs attention at the moment to, to do that. So yeah, as you know, it's a very complicated uh, proposition, the old surgery. So, and it's also yeah, kind of well, weird to have it as your normal. <laughs> it is. It is weird to have it as your normal. It's weird to constantly go and and visit your surgeon. Um, yeah, yeah. When you tell people that, oh yeah, I'm going to see my surgeon today, they go, What do you mean you're going to see your mean? surgeon? Yeah. yeah um, that's well, right. yeah, the guy who keeps cutting me up. Cutting um, me up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, uh, yeah I'm, I'm no longer allowed to have surgery now yep. um with where i've got to they um the surgeon actually refuses to do any further surgery unless it's life-saving sure. uh, as in emergency life-saving because yep. um i now have um cancer actually in the fascia um okay. and so every time they make any sort of incision or any time i graze myself now i actually spread cancer cells which is interesting Wow, that um, is yeah, that's tough. Yeah, it's uh, it's different. It's uh, yeah, that was yep. a weird conversation to have with my yeah, surgeon. Completely. I'm sure you've had yep. some weird ones with yours. Weird ones, yeah, <laughs> that's yeah. for sure. Uh, and then yeah. lung surgeries, five lung surgeries. So um, yeah. that's pretty full on because lungs must. Uh, I haven't had lung surgery. I, I can't yep. imagine it must feel like you're drowning when you're yeah. in recovery yeah it's um so I've had one lobectomy so we had an entire lobe that had to come out and then yeah. I've had four wedge resections as well um 
four of the operations we've done just keyhole. One of them we had to actually carve into a rib to get access to the area we needed to lop out of there. Um, yeah. So, yeah, lungs lungs are tough. To be honest, like some of the – even the, the smaller resections, the smaller wedges, you know, if they hit me in particular places – for whatever reason, um, they've been tougher to recover, some of them, than the actual complete loss of a lobe. Um, but, yeah, uh, lung surgery is tough. That kind of feeling of, like you, like you say, that kind of drowning and not being, just simply not being able to get enough air into to where you want to get it. And, um, and, and, that, and then it's a, it's a constant battle um, to get your lung capacity, capacity back and to train up um, and to, to test your body to sort of see how far you should go. And, and of course, for someone, you know, um, like I'm 35 years old, I'm relatively fit. Um, and so the conversation You're very I have, fit compared well, to the average person. <laughs> well, I can yeah. Tell you that. Um, okay, I'll take that. Um, but, yeah, the conversations with my thoracic surgeon who's doing all of my lung surgeries are really interesting, right, because he, he doesn't really see that many people who've had five lung surgeries who are then going out for a run. So it's really hard for me to say, am I pushing too hard? Am I, what am I doing? He's like, well, Nicole, I don't don't really know. (laughs) You're doing great though. You should keep doing it. So yeah, it's, you know, I'm navigating something that is a very unique human experience, I guess. um, And, and just trying to do the best I can. Well, you're smashing it. Like, you know, like as, as you know, I follow you on Instagram um, and, and while we're speaking of that, where can people follow you on Instagram if they wish to? Because you've got so, a public profile. I do. Yep. It's Nicole Coopy. So, um, yeah, Cooper is my surname. Just remove the E and the R and replace it with a Y. And, yeah, Nicole Coopy is my Instagram uh, name. also my Twitter handle. I'm not very good on Twitter, though. Oh, yeah. And no, I, did, I did Twitter for about <laughs> 10 minutes and went, no, this is not my nah. <laughs> yep. cup of tea. So, uh, yes. Yes. Anyway, it's, it seems to be definitely a North American, uh, European thing, Twitter. Um, it seems to be a bit less in Australia. I think I have too so. much to say. That's the issue for me. The character count and the, like, I'm just not <laughs> pissy enough. I don't know. <laughs> you can't quite do the Donald Trump couple of words yeah, just to piss no, everyone off. No, that's right. Thing. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. So uh, now, who was Nicole before you discovered cancer yeah so uh, look I'm uh, I was obviously a brand new mum at that point so I um, you know it was eight months into discovering what life was like uh, with a brand new baby boy it was our first child and um, my husband and I um, my husband Tim and I were sort of navigating being parents and what that was all about um, I'm also you know, I'm, I'm very, like I said, very career driven person. I'm, um, you know, my undergrad study was in Asian studies and journalism. I'm a communicator from, um, in terms of background, I'm Perth born and bred in, in Western Australia originally, um, met my husband in Melbourne, but we've lived in Sydney. We've lived in Canberra. We've traveled a lot for work. Um, and I've done a lot of further studies. So I've got an MBA, um, quite entrepreneurial in spirit and, um, you know, a bit of a workaholic really in terms of, um, how I like to spend my time, um, 
very much uh, sort of interested in the human journey within a workplace. So my sort of, I ended up working as a management consultant ultimately, taking an interesting path to kind of get there. But uh, yeah, so worked with a lot of big organisations, um, Australian companies and global organisations in managing their workforces through change. Uh, and that's kind of my my work history met my husband Tim as part of that and eventually when we traveled enough and worked enough we wrapped our heads around being parents and taking a bit of a break to do that and yeah he was really kind of barely out really before I um I found cancer so that's been um you know obviously a, a really interesting three years for me when we talk about who I who I was by definition and how I spent my time versus what I've done in the last three years which could have been more different really to to the Nicole who came before but um yeah for the better I think it's it's I've always been interested in people and change and boy have I experienced a lot of that so yeah oh it's definitely it's definitely life-changing yeah there's no doubt about that completely so uh, in that change yeah uh, this is going to sound a bit weird but are you are you happy with the change if you could get rid of cancer and you just had to change, mm. um, has it changed you to a better person, do you think? Yeah, it has. I And and to be honest, like, I would never want to – it is a weird question and it's hard for me to articulate this and, and I think people can sometimes be a little bit dismissive when I try to explain this, but I, you know, I actually wouldn't change very much of my experience at all, you know, like I'm, I'm – I'm very, very hopeful that my uh, that my cancer doesn't kill me and I don't end up in that in that place. Um, yeah. But in terms of of who I have become, in terms of what I prioritise, in terms of how much love I have for the people in my life um, who give that love to me, you know, I'm 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 a very different person. I'm a very forgiving person. I'm a very tolerant person. Um, and I think I have, you know, a lot of energy to give life and I feel like I direct it in the right meaningful places now, um, having gone through this experience and I, and I don't think I would change that. And I do think I'm a, I'm a better person for it. Um, yeah. And a lot of things, you know, motivation and, and discipline and, and focus and drive and, and just having an understanding of, of what we're actually made of and what we're capable of as well. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, in uh, coming coming back to, to cancer and, and particularly surgeries, yeah. prehab and rehab. Yep. Now, uh, I've worked my life as a coach, and so yep. I would have a very different version of what prehab and rehab are. <laughs> yep. So can you explain what prehab and rehab are for someone who might be about to undertake uh the journey or has been recently diagnosed um just what that might mean for them or what it meant for you basically really yeah Yeah. well I guess I like I need to put the big kind of disclaimer waiver whatever on on this whole conversation and say you know like prior to prior to me um encountering cancer I was not a really a physically active person I was later a little bit into my working life and I was, you know, I went to the gym reluctantly. But growing up, like I was not into doing 
anything physically, you know, active sport, you know, any kind of those like athletic pursuits, be it by myself or in a team, I just found them all of those things very boring and cumbersome and I was the person who would intentionally forget my sports uniform and that's just who I was I just wasn't I didn't find it interesting I was very academically minded and um, once I started uni I went begrudgingly to the gym because you know that's what people seem to do once I started working I did it more and more but I never found any kind of true happiness and passion I think in in being active until I was working until I met Tim really and Tim's a when I met him he was a triathlete um he's a two-time three-time Ironman um you know and and he just had a completely different uh, I guess approach to what being physically active was all about and, and the joy that you could find in that and I kind of want to throw that out first because me being a runner quote unquote is, is quite a new thing um, and so once I was diagnosed, I did a lot of research around exercise because my oncologist had told me that I should use exercise as a medicine. And I was told that very specifically that exercise could function as a medicine in my treatment journey. And I needed to understand it that way. And I needed to prioritize it in the same way that I was prioritizing getting into the chemo chair. And I was really interested in that. And I wanted to make sure that there were signs around that. Not that I didn't understand him, but more so to explain it to everyone else who was trying to come along in this journey with me. Um, and, and that led me to do a lot of research around the role of exercise in the treatment of cancer. And there's, a, you know, an amazing body of research around what exercise can do for cancer in terms of reducing ultimately the risk of cancer, but also reducing the recurrence of cancer, reducing the impact of side effects, you know, putting me back in the chemo chair more regularly and every time, you know, and, and doing that was kind of the motivation for me. So when I was diagnosed, I needed to do 12 rounds of chemo and we needed to kill as much of that cancer as we possibly could. And it was heinous chemo. And so in that respect, the exercise was used as an enabler um, of treatment. Once I got through 12 rounds and we had a great response and then I needed to prepare for surgery, it was this, you know, life-saving surgery. Um, and so then the discussion around prehab for surgery um, I had with an exercise physiologist who sat me down and said, okay, if you're going to go into a surgery, you need to prepare your body for that. You need to prepare your body for what it's going to go through in terms of not being able to move for such an extended period of time. And you can actually, you know, work a lot of the muscle groups into a period, you know, a status of strength to prepare them to then be cut open. You know, <laughs> there's a, a lot of a lot of movement that you're still going to want to be able to do, even though you can't do as much as, as you wanted to. And and I had had, you know, a little bit of those ideas explained to me when I was pregnant. And, and I did work out when I was pregnant up until the point of giving birth as well. And so I understood that I could kind of train into that physical experience and then rehab out of it as well. Um, and so the idea of prehab and, and rehab from surgeries is, is just the same, really, with the, with the added value of knowing that exercise is not just helping me physically recover from this particular surgery but is also helping in the broader treatment of my cancer excellent it's a long answer take, sorry yeah it's a lot and i was just taking it all in because um yeah i've look i've i've been in the same sort of boat and yeah. um exercise exercise for me like I, you know i get comments on online etc or yep. comments from people yep. you know are you doing too much and it's like well yeah. when i do that much i stop taking pain meds so yeah. 
I'm pretty happy not taking, and we're not talking Panadol anymore. So yeah, completely. Yeah, completely. Yeah. Is and your speaking of that? Is your pain? Is your cancer painful? Um, no, not really. Um, it's painful. Like I guess you know, as you would know, with the bowel cancer, when you're dealing with areas of of the bowel, I think it's more painful in terms of frustrating, in terms of you know, like how irritating it is that you kind of your you know your bowel habits just out the window totally, and that totally gone yes yeah and that's quite yeah. restrictive for me you know like trying to work trying to exercise trying to do all of those things in terms of physical pain I wouldn't I wouldn't say so no um I have like other physical manifestations so like breathlessness and all of those sorts of things as a result of my lung surgeries when I was diagnosed of course it was extremely painful like my liver was full of disease and it was my liver was really swelling within the capsule you know like I was kind of on oh, the verge yeah, yeah. of going into like a liver failure I was getting referred pain all down my arms and you know that part was extremely painful oh, and of course all of the yeah. surgeries have been extremely painful <laughs> but day-to-day pain no I'm I'm really lucky I've got um a lot of nerve pain that persists um particularly across my sort of the, my my, um, my back my abdomen where we've just made so many cuts into me um that I do get a bit of nerve pain and there's there's drugs that I could take for that, but to be honest, I try to just, I don't know, be a bit tough about it. I just feel like, you know, as you know, you have to kind of make a there's, there's such a complexity with, with your treatment landscape and what you have to take and what you have to put in your body. And I try to make pretty pragmatic decisions about what I can tolerate and, and, and you know, just kind of get on with it, I guess, is my yeah. take. Yeah. Um, when they resected your liver, yeah, I mean, your liver grows back in I think is it eight weeks or twelve? Yeah, I don't, I, yeah, I don't know, but it and, does and grow did back. It, yeah, did it did it grow back completely cancer free? Like they managed to get all of the um, cancer plus a margin. Yeah, so that, yeah. So my uh, liver scenario um, was pretty dire. So I I had like we counted sort of 13, 14 um, tumours in my liver. Yeah. And, and and when I was diagnosed, it was completely unresectable. So where I've had a response from chemotherapy, um, it's shrunk or killed, you know, quote, unquote, some of the um, disease in there. So we've lobbed off, um, you know, a bit that, that still had active disease in it. Um, the sites that remain are sites of former cancer, if you like, of sites of former tumours. So we watch them, you know, they don't, they don't uh, light up like a Christmas tree on, on all the scans. Um, and therefore, you know, we're led to believe based on, on you know, the investigation that we can do um, that they're dead and they're going to remain dead. But that, like I say, you know, like stage four land is just never, you just never know. And one of them could actually still be alive. One of them could still be, you know, there could be some cells in there doing their thing and, and we might have to jump back in and, and do some more, some more liver work at some stage but that's just that's just the reality of my life now you know that's just you know like as I'm sure you experience the same right you just kind of have to just take each day as it comes and and see okay well what's my body going to throw at me next and and how am I going to respond to that pretty pretty much and I love the fact that you've just used the the term light up like a Christmas tree because (laughs) when I when I was first diagnosed yeah um, so I, I went into hospital, uh, you know, collapsed at work and I, I, went, I ended up in hospital and, um, the surgeon came and saw me and said, oh, I need you to have a PET dot scan. 
I went, yeah, yeah. cool. And I, and I had that. And then I went literally straight from that scan into surgery. Yeah. And um, I was having a joke with the surgeon, or at least trying to, in pre-op. Um, and because the day before, or the two days before, when I had a chat with him, he's quite an athlete himself. And yeah. so, you know, we were having a joke and a chat about training. And um, But he was dead serious. He goes, you've just lit up the scan mm. like a Christmas tree. Yeah. And it's just like, oh, there's that same term. Like, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of, absolutely. It's kind of funny that that's, that's been used uh, by other surgeons. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Yeah. And it's a, it's a weird choice, right? Because you would think that there's a lot of, a lot of joy and happiness in the bright lights of a Christmas tree, but not so yeah, much. That's exactly your body. right. Yeah. But no, once, once you've, <laughs> not in this once particular you've been scenario. in a hospital, yeah. it's, uh, yeah. <laughs> no, and yeah, yeah you, you light them up and they, Oh, and this colour means this, and this colour yeah. means that, and you go, oh, there's yeah. a lot of glowing colour of that colour there. Yeah, it's yeah. not so good. Yeah, yeah, there is. No. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 Because it, 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 for, for anyone who hasn't seen one, it does kind of look like Christmas lights because they're all different colours. There's different reds and colors, yellows and greens yeah. and blues, yeah. um, depending on the intensity, and blacks, depending on the intensity of what's um, going on and just how active the tumors are when they take yeah. that photograph as such yeah that's um, right. yeah so so tell us about your running because yeah. uh, just just this week and then i also have to hear about your whippet but um <laughs> just just this week you had dramatically increased your ability to run um, yeah. which was quite phenomenal. Like when I, I was reading through your post and you'd run three kilometres, which is excellent. Like it's fantastic. And then next yeah. minute you've like gone to 3.5 Ks, which for anyone who's just running or learning to run, like yeah. that's a massive difference. It's a big jump. Yeah. 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 So, yeah. So I um, – I guess this kind of goes to that the point I was making around kind of challenging yourself and 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 what you're capable of and 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 where your body can truly take you and and also really you know trying to steer the body completely without a map really and with no one kind of telling you what you should or shouldn't be doing because you know what I'm facing and what I'm trying to achieve is just really uncharted territory. No one really knows. People think it's great that I'm exercising and I'm physical, but the, the, the choices around, well, can I do this? And is this too much, you know, to your statement earlier is only something that I can ultimately answer at this point. Um, I, I have, you know, I ran, I was a runner, not a very kind of committed runner, <laughs> you know, I would run, um, because I, um, because I knew that it would keep me fit and because it would help me, you know, manage weight or, or any of those sorts of things, but not because I found any particular joy in it. And it just felt like a kind of a, a quick and speedy path to being fit and healthy. Um, you know, uh, when I met my husband, obviously he he helped me find a little bit more, um, I guess, intention in running in terms of actually trying to think about how you train your body in a very intentional way to perform better at running. Um, and then, of course, once I was diagnosed with cancer and I wanted to run, I had more of a reason to run, um, then I got better. Um, the longest that I ever did um, in terms of, you know, duration of running was kind of around the sort of eight, nine, I hit 10 kilometres once. Um but the reality of it for me was I, 
I would kind of push myself to as far as I could go before I had my next kind of impending round of chemo or I had my next decision around lung surgery or, you know, ultimately when we decided to, you know, to do my, my operation to take my bowel and liver, there was always, you know, opportunities to run, but those opportunities would only last for so long before then I was ultimately back into a rehab scenario and having to start from scratch, you know. Um, when I had my bowel and liver resection, I was in hospital for, you know, um, 10 days. I lost six kilos in that time. I, you know, I couldn't walk. I had to learn to walk again um, through the pain, you know, that was associated with having that degree of surgery. And that's a lot, you know, to kind of recover from and then to get back to a stage of running. And um, But through the process, I guess, of, of learning to find joy in it and, and kind of using it as my my ownership of myself and kind of tra- taking back the control of what I've experienced um, through my cancer, I have found a lot of joy in running um, to the point that I think one of the toughest things about being a runner um is the fact that you can't run. And I think that that, you know, <laughs> I guess like, like that's my status quo so regularly is that I can't run and, and or that it's a, you know, a really hard slog. So, you know, um, my, the work that I'm doing at the moment to get my running back is off the back of those five lung surgeries, which are sort of the thing that's really held me back from, from running the most, because it's not just, you know, like cardiovascular capacity, but as you know, it's, it's you know, it's heart rate and what your heart is actually, up for for doing um you know and my my heart rate has gone completely um crazy on occasion and I've had to see cardiologists around that you know like your body's just constantly trying to reshuffle and readjust to to what it finds is is now its operating environment and that's really hard to navigate um but yeah this this week I just was like okay I think I can do this and I think I can push and I think I can go a little bit further and I'm just going to try and yeah move from three kilometers to 3.5 in terms of distance and and also did that faster than I had been doing because of course running for me is quite slow and it's just a kind of plodding along um but you know it's moving and Tim my husband has told me many times that if if I'm running then it's a run and I'm not allowed to call it a jog because it's a run and it's my run and I'm owning it and and that's the way I'm going to look at it so um so yeah it's uh I have quiet aspirations to, which I'm now announcing on your podcast, to kind of get back to that five kilometre mark pretty quickly, to be honest, um, because that that's kind of a place where I was quite comfortable and it's the run that I could do quite comfortably. Um, and I feel like my lungs are really responding at the moment and I feel like my my heart is is really comfortable as well at the moment. So, yeah, we'll just see how that goes. Does your... Um... Are you on any treatments in between the chemo? Like, are you on any meds, um, any other meds to to help out? No, no, no. no. Okay. Um, yeah, I was just asking because, like, I, I have treatment every three weeks, and okay. after the treatment that I have, like, I'll feel all right, and then I'll yeah. try to run, and my heart rate just goes yeah. ballistic. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it, it takes a good, you know, the, well, the, the last treatment, which was a week ago, it, it took me like four days before my heart rate came back yeah. to where it was okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, yeah. Which is, I guess, understandable. Like your body is just filled with these toxins and it's just trying to, you know, process them and 
and well, that's oh, the way yeah, I that, guess I've always thought is, about it. Yeah, so toxic. It's, it's hilarious when um, you go into hospital and and then have you had to wear the blue suits, yeah, et cetera, or yeah. had the blue yeah. tags? Yeah, yeah. So you go into hospital and they go, "Oh, you're really toxic. We can't yeah. let you, you know, go." I, I remember um, I had a, a radiation treatment, yeah. and yep. then they get out the Geiger counter. And they put mm-hmm. the Geiger counter next to me and they go, no, you can't leave because if you sit near somebody, you're going to make them sick. And it's like, <laughs> hang on a second. Yeah. I'm going to make someone else sick yep. from the amount of radiation that I'm currently radiating. Oh, For my sure. God. You know? Yeah. So, yeah. 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 Doesn't um, that stuff give you cancer? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. It's, it's kind of funny, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Um, how the perspective changes. So what do you think? You're obviously very driven. Um, yes. And, you know, you've, you've announced where you'd like to get to with your running, which is huge and fantastic. Um, and what – first question, what is your capacity of your lungs now? Like how much have they taken out? Um, like, do you know a percentage approximately? No, uh, not really. Like we've taken out um, – And is it your left and your right lung or just one of them? We've operated on both of them. So it was my right. right- okay. Um, the lower right lobe that we took out, I think. Um, and then, yeah, we, but we have operated on both sides. Um, and so my lower, in both, then. Yeah, yep, yep, yep. And my lower left lobe is is where we've had a couple of operations. And so, and it's a little bit, you know, you would know on scans, not everything is definitive. And if there was an area that was a little bit questionable, yeah. it's that. Yeah. Um, and so there's a kind of an ongoing threat that we might need to take out that lower left lobe. And I think that's part of my motivation too, is that, you know, I, I can run at the moment and, and I can push myself. So I'm just going to do that because, you know, I could get my next scan and they could say, yeah, do you know what? We're just going to take out that lower left lobe. And then what's that going to feel like? I have no idea. You know, will I be yeah. able to run at all? I have no idea, you know, and I, I had that outlook when they told me for the first time that I would have to have lung surgery and I've just had to kind of deal with that. Um, but I can still ultimately get to a place where I am running. And so, yeah, like a technical kind of, I need to do some, lung capacity tests and do all of those sorts of things and kind of follow that up. But to be honest, because I've been in treatment, in that treatment pattern for so long, and when you're a very active cancer patient, it's hard to think about things that feel a little bit like luxurious, I guess, in terms of, you know, oh, let's go do a lung capacity kind of test or work out that kind of stuff. It's like, well, really, is that life-saving? Not really. Do I have enough time for that? Probably not. I should probably go schedule a colonoscopy or something first, you know. Like, that's just kind of like prioritisation of a hospital or a medical centre at the moment. But, um, but yeah, I do kind of want to figure out some of that stuff. Um, but, yeah, I, you know, it's funny too. Like, I find that my lung capacity – at the moment is pretty good because I think we all kind of as humans have relatively short memories really. And and I know like at one stage I could run further than I can run now, but I felt pretty good when I just did my three and a half kilometer runs. So I don't know. I do, as I say, have quiet aspirations for my lungs and, and what they're going to be able to do next. And post surgeries, cause you've had quite a few. Um, yeah. How do you reset your brain to go all right, let's do it again. Like I'm going to be out of this and I'm going to be back up and doing X, Y, or Z, you know, how, how do you not get down in the dumps? Um, discipline rather than motivation. And this is something that I've been talking about a little bit lately in kind of having different conversations with different people on different themes. But 
I think there's a big difference between discipline and motivation. And I think a lot of people talk to me like, how can you possibly still feel motivated to do this? And the answer is I don't necessarily at all, but I do feel disciplined to do it um, in the same way that, you know, if I have to go to treatment, um, you know, every fortnight for chemotherapy, I might wake up and feel thoroughly unmotivated to do that, but I'm disciplined and I have to do it. And, and that just is the way that it is. And I might go and I really enjoy it and I might go, I find zero love in it whatsoever, but whatever, like I just have to get it done. And I think that that's the kind of the mindset that I've tried to apply to exercise and to the physical kind of rehab, prehab journey um, for cancer for me, knowing, of course, that then I get all of the endorphins and all of the other positive effects of exercise, which then have a great effect on me from a mental health perspective. And and that, you know, the, the physical health and the mental health, you know, being so intrinsically linked, you know, it's particularly for me, that, you know. Um, so that's how I, that's how I do it. Sometimes I really don't care to, but I just tell myself that I just have to, and it, I just do. Yeah. And um, I mean, your son's very young. Was it yeah. Joshua? Joshua, yeah. He's now, yeah. he'll be four now in July. So, yeah. And he's probably just grown up with it. So he probably doesn't know any different. But how, no. how does Joshua handle mum being ill when mum's ill? Yeah, he's he's getting a growing awareness, you know, as to what, that is but I think for a child it's something that's just so part of their normal world and they're growing up in their imagination and and he just kind of plays with the ideas that he sort of sees around him do you know what I mean like I feel like yeah. other parents are out doing work or they're doing this or they're doing that mummy's a hairdresser whatever they're the kind of games and play that their kids talk about like for me Josh plays and talks about being in hospital a lot, about doctors, about having sore bits and, you know, asks me about my sore bits all the time. Mummy, how's your, mama, how's your sore bits? Um, but, I, uh, you know, our approach has been to be very open with him um, very intentionally because, I, you know, like when I was diagnosed, I wasn't going to have any of this time necessarily with him. So, yeah, I, you know, we just tried to make the decision that he was just going to come along with the journey and, and that if I was going to survive, um, that cancer would actually always be part of my life. And so we just needed to be totally transparent with him as to what that meant. And, um, yeah, he's, uh, he's pretty good. He's got, you know, like, I, like, like you would know as well, you spend so much time in a hospital, right? So you kind of, you become part of the furniture really at the hospital and the staff know too you much and, time in a hospital yeah completely more, and and more time than i ever wanted to spend in my yeah, life yeah and more time really yeah. than you spend anywhere else really <laughs> so um but that so that's part of his relationship kind of network now is is you know nurses and doctors and um and yeah i think ultimately that can only be a positive thing because it's a lot of perspective and awareness you know in terms of the different stuff that goes on in life and some people are healthy and happy all the time and some people are sick and that's sad and some sometimes they get better and sometimes they just stay really sick and we just have to be really lucky and and, and trying to teach him to be grateful and aware very very complex complex ideas you know for for someone who's three or four years old but you know he's a he's a superstar he does very well yeah look from um, what i see online he's a, he's a awesome kid he um, is he's amazing he yeah he uh 
And he likes his sushi, from what I've seen. He does. Yeah, at the moment, he's particularly addicted, yes. Yeah, I was, it was funny because um, it was only a couple of weeks ago that um, my kids said to me, oh, we'd like sushi for lunch. And I went, well, yeah. I don't think we've ever been to a sushi restaurant. We've always just yeah. got, you know, takeaway. So yeah. let's go to a sushi restaurant together. Yeah. Mum was at, yeah. you know, their mum, their mum was at work. We were, yeah. My wife was at work. And I um, said, so, oh, rightio. So they go, well, what do you do? And I said, well, you, in this case, we just take the plate off the thing that's spinning around. And around. Well, yep. oh, hasn't it been the talk ever since? Yeah. So it's, it's amazing <laughs> just the little things that, you know. Yeah, the little thing. Yeah, well, yeah. I, my son's always been obsessed with trains transport of any kind of uh description so when i explained to him that there was a train that had sushi on it that that was just yep. that was amazing that was next level and it has been ever since really so yeah we spent a lot of time doing that and but that's you know i don't know i just i, I try to be a bit kind of easy on myself in terms of uh you know he does spend at least one one meal a week you know out and about doing stuff like that but you know i've got a lot of stuff on my plate at the moment so if he can have a nice sushi meal and enjoy himself then he should do that definitely definitely and, and you also how... made reference to my other son my yeah. my furry son yes you're with it so what yeah. is he's, name? so he's actually an italian greyhound is he really so he's yeah That's not a whippet. no even smaller than a whippet yeah wow so, okay yeah I learn yeah. something new every day. Yeah. So he's uh, his name is Moses. Moses. Yep. And Moses has uh, he's been in our lives for seven years now, and yeah, he's uh, he's he takes up a lot of energy. I'm often told that he should have his own Instagram profile. Um, he probably quite, should. <laughs> he's quite the unique dog, and I'm sure there's a lot of people who think there's way too much Josh content on my profile and nowhere near enough <laughs> Moses content. But <laughs> Yeah, he's uh, he's good too. He keeps me keeps me out as well and active, obviously as well, getting out of the house with him too. So yeah, he's a character I, though. He is a character. I can only imagine doing a uh, Instagram profile for my Great Dane. Yeah. Uh, this is this is my dog stealing food. This is my dog stealing food again. Yeah. This is my dog <laughs> with its head resting on the kitchen bench, and it's not doing anything but just standing next to the bench. Yeah. 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 It, uh, but having having said that, yeah, he, it's your dog is very cute, that's for sure. So any <laughs> yeah. anyone who hasn't seen it, jump on Nicole's Instagram page and um, Moses is there. Yes, so, he is. He is now. Um, Tim, your husband. Um, yep. I, I'm almost tempted to get him on the podcast to chat about Ironmans, but. Um, yeah. My one experience at Ironman, I didn't finish, so I was a DNF after getting hit by a car. But that's a whole different oh. podcast. Whoa! Um, okay, that yeah, yeah, that does sound quite, like a different. Quite, yep. Quite the experience. Um, wow. But moving on from that, how has Tim um, handled your diagnosis and then treatments, etc.? Because I imagine that was quite a shock to him. Complete shock, of course. You know, like we had just. You know, we got Tim and I got engaged within sort of 12 months of knowing each other and, and married a year later with the very kind of firm commitment to spending some years just the two of us together and, you know, building a marriage and, and strength and in that marriage and love in that marriage to then ultimately have kids. And so when we finally decided to have kids, we'd really thought about it. We're both very career driven people. Um, 
it was a big undertaking to do it, but we were ready and, and all about it. And then here he is, you know, being told that his wife is not going to be here and that he's just be about to become a single dad. And it, it was just absolutely horrendous, you know, and has been, you know, in varying capacities ever since. And and the real, the really complex part of, of our whole story that, you know, I have spoken about in a couple of different forums and, and that we have acknowledged and not everybody kind of knows all the time, I guess, when I have conversations about my cancer and my situation, is that Tim was actually diagnosed with prostate cancer as well. Holy uh, shit. Okay. Yeah. So Excuse my Tim language there, everybody. But... Yeah. <laughs> it's a lot. It's, yeah. Yeah. It's a lot. a lot. Yeah. It's, uh, so, I, you know, we took a mini break in Queensland the week before my, you know, quote-unquote life-saving liver surgery that I was never going to have. Uh, and while we were there, he got a call to confirm that, yep, he had a prostate cancer and it was a, you know, it was an early prostate cancer and it was under control and it was fine. But, you know, here he is, at, you know, like we're the same age, having to deal with being told that he's got a prostate cancer in a kind of a landscape where, to be honest, his kind of stage one prostate cancer doesn't really have much of a profile against my stage four <laughs> bowel cancer. And it's and that's yeah, not fair, right? Like, like that's not fair. No. Yeah. Um, and so for him to have to deal with all of that as a sort of a, uh, a passenger to my experience as well, it's just been, you know, it's, he's, you know, then, you know, he's the breadwinner and the dad. And yeah, so Tim's Tim's a champion and you should get him on your podcast because, yeah, he's got some great stuff to say. <laughs> but yeah, he's uh, he's great. And he's and he's, you know, such an amazing support to Josh and I. And, and he, you know, and and the reason I, you know, am able to still be here and do what I do is because Tim works in partnership with me and. Yeah, I'm very, I'm very lucky, and we are very lucky as in our in our little family group of of the three of us and the hound. Yeah, well, you, you, I'm gonna have to get you to work on Tim for me then, um, for sure. To get him to get him on the podcast, that that sounds yeah. like a, a perfect thing for because this will be series two when this one comes out. So yeah. uh, we might have to get you at the start of series two, and maybe Tim at the end of series two, and we'll shove some stuff in the middle yeah um that could that could work out really well just uh thinking of podcasting but um <laughs> scheduling yeah <laughs> yeah scheduling is exactly right it's one of those things that um you know like i started this podcast after co-hosting another podcast which i still do and then yep. um and then I started to get sick again and it was just like, oh, I've got to take a break. Like yeah. it just it just gets to the point where you've got to start going, right, okay, what am I offloading? Completely. So I was like, I'm what are getting your priorities? enough rest. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And you have yeah. to um, – yeah, it's one of the things with being sick, um, I, I don't think it really matters whether you've got cancer or, you know, another illness, but you suddenly have to go through a priority list yeah. It'd be interesting to know what your priority list is and the way it works. But um, you go through this priority list and you go, right, that's gone, that's gone, that's gone, that's gone. Yeah. That's The only yeah. thing I need to do today is this. Um, yeah. And, you know, at the end of the day, for me personally, it would be, right, well, number one thing you have to do is look after yourself because if you don't look after yourself, can't look after anyone. Anyone else. Number yeah. two, I've got to get the kids to all of their bits and pieces that they yeah. need to do. Yeah, and then and then number three after that, it's like cooking and and housework, uh, 
you know, comes in in third. And then everything else that I do for pleasure and uh, helping out with coaching these days, et cetera, actually yeah. comes after that. After that, yeah. Um, so, yeah, it, speaking of what's your priority list like and how far, like, down that list have you, you know, had to cancel stuff as such? Well, yeah, I've like I've had to cancel heaps of stuff, you know, like a, like and, and it becomes really tough, right? As as you would really appreciate, you know, so much of our identity as people is just really bits and pieces of what we do, kind of woven in as a fabric around us, and and when we have to take some some of that out, the whole thing can just fall apart, you know, and and that kind of sense of self, and even though I am focused on on treatment and that has to be my priority and I have to keep myself alive you know not being able to do stuff like um, work and and use my brain because I put so much work into my brain and so much work into qualifications and and experience and, and all of those sorts of things and then ultimately to sort of say no I can't do any of that was that's a really tough thing to to handle and 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 I've had you know some really kind of quite profound cognitive impacts to me uh, as a result of my treatment you know my chemotherapy has meant that I'm not you know as someone who's a communicator it's quite tough to have your words kind of taken from you and and have some of your your neural pathways kind of a bit stuffed up for like you know a better expression um and and I've really felt that as well it it takes me longer sometimes to form arguments or to think about things in a kind of a logical sequence that I can explain to others and and that's been really tough as well um so I think you know much like yourself my priority is it has to be myself um first and foremost from a from a treatment perspective and a keeping myself alive perspective I do think I find it more difficult to prioritize you know self-care and those sorts of things um and I think you know in a frame where I was using exercise as a medicine really I was working out particularly during chemotherapy every single day um because it had such a great impact on me it also meant that removed a lot of the joy from exercise it removed a lot of the kind of escape that you get from exercise because it was just something I had to do um and so yeah, those sorts of things that I have to do for myself just because it's nice to do a way down the list, I think. Um, but Josh is absolutely my priority and and Tim and I are both, you know, 100% committed to, to Josh and everything that we want to do for him. And I think, um, you know, I would also say like relationships with family, relationships with friends. I think, you know, going through an experience like this really crystallises who are the people who are, who are there for you just because they want to be there for you and just because they have something to give to you, um, not because they expect something in return. Um, and, and it really kind of brings to the, the fore kind of that expression of who your real friends are, I guess. Um, I learn a lot about relationships and what it really takes to be there for someone and, and, and how you can really discover that when you go through a crisis like this. So, yeah. Yeah. Did you find a lot of stuff in this podcast? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, <laughs> Did you – so uh, there's two things I wanted to cover. What, yeah. First one was chemo brain as such. So yeah. um, I, I've never done chemo. So chemo yeah. – um, it was really weird because when I – I think I was six weeks post-life-saving surgery and they said, yep. we'll start – we're going to start chemo now. Yeah. And I went into hospital and, you know, it was like 9 o'clock at night and my oncologist came and said to me, we're not doing chemo anymore. And I went, what? 
And he goes, no, we've, we've done some tests and it's not going to work. And yeah. I went, what? And he's gone, no, I, I don't know. Like he literally almost, he didn't quite say, I don't know what we're going to do, but he said, yeah, I, I don't have a solution right now, right now, but you can yep. go home. Okay. And it was just like, okay, that's not, you know, cause my wife was with me and, and yeah. it was just not a, we were both, you could have pushed us both over with a feather. Yeah. It was very much. That's not, not what you expected. What to I expected. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I've never had um, chemo brain as such. I've, I've had yeah. experimental radiation treatment where I then uh, ended up stop. I stopped producing blood cells, and um, which was a complication, and I got pulled off that, and then I was in isolation. But um, can you explain just for those people who don't know, and, and I don't know, um, yeah. what chemo brain? is and, yeah. and how and how that really affects you so I think it really you know lots of people talk about the impact of chemotherapy and this kind of idea of chemo brain and just not being able to sort of think properly and speak properly and and it's like your brain just kind of shuts down or you just go into a bit of a fog I guess and you know bearing in mind there's lots of different chemos for different types of cancer you know cancer is a, a giant disease you know made up of a whole yes, bunch of different yeah. subtypes and there's just as many chemotherapies right um but mine you know uh, when I first started having it I was obviously very sick I had a body that was you know riddled with disease and um it was like throwing the toxicity of the chemo basically my brain just went no nah, I just can't I can't do this no sorry shutting down <laughs> and uh, and I you know I just had these horrible kind of memories of sitting on the floor you know like pulling out just looking through some of my old uni textbooks and just not and just staring at the words and they just meant nothing to me I couldn't I couldn't kind of I couldn't speak I couldn't articulate what I was thinking people would talk to me and I didn't have the wherewithal to really respond it was like I was kind of trapped in this body that wanted to say things but my brain just didn't have the focus and coordination to bring all of the ideas together and actually communicate them outwardly to people and it was it was a horrible place to be but as I had more chemo that resolved itself um and of oh, course so you got used to it as such or you, or I you did. adapted it yeah, yeah. I, it did yeah and, and I I think I was so sick too and I didn't realize how sick I was at the time you like I'd lost so much weight and I was my body was really you know I was on the verge of doing some you know going into organ failure ultimately like that's where I was heading um within a matter yeah. of weeks or months and so uh I didn't realize at all how how sick I was and of course when you put that much toxicity into a sick body it, it doesn't deal well no um, no it definitely yeah. doesn't yeah so um so that you know that was my first experience of chemo brain and then I found you know like I've gone through I've done a lot of chemotherapy sort of like mm, I don't know how many off the top of my head. This is a good example, right? Like I just can't kind of easily work that out. Um, but upwards of like 30 rounds, 35, 40 rounds maybe of chemotherapy. Um, and oh, when yeah. I went back in to do another really tough round of chemo, um, this kind of last period that that I had treatment, um, I went straight back into nowhere near as bad um, cognitively as I was, but and that's still there at the moment. You know, I sort of I struggle with my words at times. I can slur my words at times. Um, and I just find I just can't articulate what I mean sometimes in a way that that I used to, you know. And I, and I also find that my decision-making capability has changed as well. Like Tim um, 
sort of says to me sometimes, like, can you just have an opinion on something and stick to it? Like I just sort of wax and wane all over the place and, and really kind of want to take things and turn them over and not commit to an idea. And I'm really, yeah, I just think in a way that's quite different to the way that I used to think. So it's crazy, you know, what these kind of drugs do to, to your body and in ways that you don't ever expect. And it would be really easy for me to say like, uh, you know, I can't deal and, all the things that I relied on in terms of who I was have all just been kind of shut down or taken away from me or, you know, um, but, but like, I'm still here, you know, so I just, I choose to be grateful for that. Yeah, totally. Mm. Totally. It's, uh, I'm grateful for every minute. Um, yeah. you know, like, yeah, it's definitely, it, uh, it, as I've said to a lot of people, having cancer really changes your focus. Yeah. Um, and you become much more narrowed and very deliberate in everything that you do. It Absolutely. would appear that you're very much the same yeah. in that in that thought pattern. The other question that I uh, had um, out of the two was friends. Did, yep. did when you first got diagnosed, did you find that you had people that you'd known like years ago? I'm a bit yes. older than you. So you'd known years ago that all of a sudden came out of the woodwork and you were just yeah. like, Whoa, hang on a second. Yeah. Like, yeah. It's uh, you had people who you sort of thought you knew and fell by the wayside and other people who really came in and just changed Yeah, like they were there for you. Um, I guess is the word. Like I, I had it just, I, I couldn't believe like who, who was really good and, and other people who I won't say weren't good because everyone's been mm. very good to me, but they yeah. were less impactful, I guess. Sure. Um, sure. Did you find that? Yeah, I, I did. Yeah. I, um, to be honest, the people who I thought the people who I had a sneaking suspicion would be the most amazing were definitely the most amazing, you know, like I don't think yeah, I, yeah, I yeah, learned yeah. anything. And the people who I was like, Oh, I think maybe I'm lower down on the priority list that, you know, that's the way it kind of played out. Um, but to the point of, you know, people from, from a long time ago, suddenly, yeah, arriving front and center. Um, I'm, you know, I did my, like, as you mentioned, I've got a very public Instagram profile. I've, I've done a lot of public, stuff profile stuff you know I've done I'm, you know I'm an advocate for a couple of different things I've done um I've done tv you can mention I've done those things radio I've done no well I yeah um ex-med cancer is is the kind of the program um which is an exercise um medicine program for cancer so um it's a not-for-profit you know service that's looking at, at trying to you know install exercise as a as a standardized um part of the cancer care continuum so I do a lot of work with those guys so I've done radio I've done tv I've done I was on the front cover of the age and the Sydney Morning Herald I've done a tv show in um Taboo which a lot of people have um may or may not have seen that was on channel 10 with Harley Breen so I've kind of lived it in a very public way um and and so then as a result you do get lots of people reach out to you but in those initial days when I was sort of first diagnosed and I did put that in a very public way on my Instagram profile or my Facebook page or whatever and my families as well the people who came out of the woodwork were just like yeah and and I think I didn't I didn't resent it but I didn't love it to a degree it felt a little bit like it was kind of light entertainment for people to kind of 
suddenly launch themselves back into my life and kind of comment on on the status of my health journey and, and it all felt a little bit um yeah I don't know strange <laughs> to me at the time um because there were quite a few people who I hadn't seen for years you know from high school days or or very early career who kind of came in and knocked on the door or, or you know spoke to other friends of friends or have you heard this about Nicole it's so tragic and people say, well, yeah, I have because I'm in constant daily contact with Nicole and I understand exactly <laughs> what she's going through. Have going you through, been? Yeah. This is really weird. Yeah, like it's, you know, and I'm all about like direct contact. And But, for, for, you know, for I think it becomes a bit of a kind of a this tragedy of this human experience of this brand new mum who's got this bowel cancer and it's just so wrong. It's like, no, I'm a person. Like just pick up the phone and talk to me. Yeah, like that part of it was a bit strange for me. Yeah. And uh, I guess to, probably really to wrap things up is um, what is the future for Nicole? I know that – and this would be interesting. How far ahead – because you sound like a very goal-orientated person who, mm-hmm. you know, had a, a, a very much a life plan set out into your um, senior years. So did that change once you got diagnosed with cancer? Did you start thinking more short-term? And then um, – what what does the future hold? Like what are you what are you what are your what are your dreams and aims at the moment? Yeah, I I don't think it did change to be honest because I like you're quite right. I am very goal focused, but not really in a long term way. I'm more of a short term thinker. I kind of yep. you know what are we doing this year or how am I going to kill it this year um, in a positive way <laughs> uh, versus you know like a five year or a ten year plan or you know what I kind of want out of life. Um, yeah, so I think I'm just that same person. It's just a more of a complex landscape that I'm navigating now and, and the kind of the hurdles to overcome are a little bit more significant and some of them feel more out of my control. But I really try to check myself on that outlook sometimes and think, well, really, there could have been any number of things that derailed me from what I wanted to achieve and I just need to keep pushing forward. Um, and so what that looks like for me, you know, I um, at the moment I'm really making that transition where I'm not in active treatment all the time at the moment and we're just sort of watching and waiting and seeing what happens and it's my first experience of that um and so I've got a little bit more of uh, a bit more space I guess to think about what I want to do um I am writing and I have been writing a book about my experience for a little while which has been nice um so I want to finish that uh I'm still working so I want to keep on doing that and then yeah I'm kind of interested to do some some patient advocacy work and I don't quite know what that's going to look like at the moment. So that's a bit of a kind of a, how do I take this whole, you know, my career experience and, and, and my cancer experience and package it into something that has ultimately a positive impact on other people. Um, Cause I have learned a lot as I'm sure you can relate to about what it is to have cancer in Australia and, and what that looks like pragmatically from a treatment perspective, um, you know, doctors and hospitals and insurance and, and all of those sorts of things and how to get the best outcomes. And I think there's a lot that can be done in that area. And I'm quite interested in pursuing that personally, I guess, um, in terms of what I can do in a really positive way. Well, that's awesome. Yeah, um, yeah I think that's, I've ended up kind of in the same place where you're just trying to, you're trying to help other people. Um, yeah. And then you're looking for the avenues to, to do that. To do that, which is, yeah. Yeah, which is... To uh, best match I, I your skill excellent. set and experience and, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, completely. That's exactly right. So, um, well, I think that that's a great place to wrap it up. I thank you very much. You've been 
an incredibly good speaker. You certainly haven't come across as nervous at all, which is fantastic. Um, Thank you. Which, you know, yeah, I genuinely appreciate it. And I appreciate the time. uh, And it's fantastic that you've got to a place where treatment is not uh, at the forefront of all thought. um, Yes. which, Which is awesome, especially after three years of having that as your focus. Um, uh, yeah, that's brilliant. It really is. Thank you. Thank you so much. I, and I really appreciate, you know, the opportunity to, to chat, particularly, you know, being able to chat with someone who's, who's gone through so much, you know, um, and I think that it's part of the whole kind of cancer process, as you know, it really kind of introduces you to a whole new world. Um, and that world is filled with really, you know, wonderful people who have had, similar but vastly different kind of experiences. And so this is just another one of those opportunities to connect. And so thank you for reaching out and and for having me. My pleasure.